From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Jenny Veit, Assistant Editor at the Swanee Review, and I'm here today at the Ralston Listening Room with Elena Passarello, the author of two essay collections. She is a recipient of a 2015 Whiting Award, and her first collection, Let Me Clear My Throat, won the gold medal for nonfiction at the 2013 Independent Publisher Awards. Elena's essays have recently appeared in Tin House, The Paris Review, and her latest collection, Animals Strike Curious Poses, was a New York Times editor's choice. Elena teaches in the MFA program at Oregon State University. In addition to writing, she has performed in several regional theaters in the East and Midwest. And in 2011, she became the first woman winner of the annual Stella Screaming Contest in New Orleans. Elena, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited to be in this room yeah. with you. It's so gorgeous. It's this like low-ceilinged, kind of soundproofed. It's covered with records. And I've heard that like you can have an incredible listening experience if you take one of these records into the booths. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people will just come in here usually blasting classical music. <laughs> and this is the library. so And no one can hear it. Oh, so one of the things about it is that like you can listen to it in here without headphones on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. No, it's, yeah. This is just like one big Surround listening cave. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so... Do you think they're going to let me... Listen oh to my gosh, afterwards? of course. Okay, yeah. Great. No, Good. we'll make it a priority. Yes. I wanted to talk about your latest collection, Animals Strike Curious Poses, which I know no one can see my face at this moment, but I currently have a very big smile. <laughs> I just absolutely adore this collection. Oh, um, I'm so glad. Thank you. <laughs> it just, I could probably talk about it for longer than the time we've been given, but it investigates notable animals throughout history and folklore and even religion. Mm-hmm. And I really just wanted to ask, how did this project come to fruition? Did it start with a specific animal? Yeah, you know, it did. It was a really long time ago. I wrote the first essay long before I started the book. Uh, my first First year in grad school, in MFA school, I was in my late 20s. And the first semester, I was just kind of playing around, just trying to write. I had, I, I didn't, I came from a performance background, so I hadn't been writing very much. And I was just kind of desperate to, to generate content. And in the first term, I wrote a couple of essays. And one of them, became kind of a a starter piece for the first book I wrote, Let Me Clear My Throat, which is all about the human voice. And then when I finished that, I actually went back to that same semester and found a piece that I had written. I think it was the very first piece that I wrote on like the first week of grad school for somebody, somebody asked us to write like a one page essay. And I had written just this really quick sketch of this, this thing that I had learned that week, which was that um, Shakespeare had this bear that he was kind of jealous of because he was, the bear was in these bear baiting rings right next to the globe theater and the, and the animal baiting sport was taking tickets away from 
the plays at the Globe and the other places that Shakespeare performed them. It was like competition, you know? So he name checks them in this kind of bitchy way in The Merry Wives of Windsor. And I just thought that was so interesting that because they decided to name this bear, this bear that the, the humans basically were going to brutalize, but he became so famous, they gave him this name. And we don't quite know why he has this name. And then now that name is just uttered, you know, when it's not a pandemic, probably at least two or three times a week all across the planet, because Merry Wives of Windsor is a frequently performed play. It just like, it just made my brain kind of explode. And so I wrote a little, just a little thing about it. I knew I was interested in the fact that the animal had a name in a way that I might be interested in what were the circumstances of other animals being given names by humans and then being immortalized. Like there was something like in the very beginning, even though I was just making this little sketch that I could just smell kind of prismatic potential of, of that one relationship. At some point I made a little list of like, are there, uh, what are other ways in which I could look at a named animal or other named animals that I know of that might be interesting to write about? I also know that you wrote some of these essays in the Paris Review while mm -hmm. this book was forthcoming. And in one, I think it might have been your last column that you did, you you wrote something, and I'm going to butcher it. Um, I but barely it was, remember it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was something so prophetic, like, you know, who am I to give this animal history? Who are we as humans to give an animal an entire just identity? And that really stuck with me. Did I write that? I think so. <laughs> wow. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I, there's only one Elena Passarello. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> I've been working really hard to to like get people to protect the domain. No, I'm just <laughs> I think I figured out kind of halfway through putting the essays together that this is just a book about human animals. When people decide to do something or tell stories about a non-human animal, they're really it's a mirror. Like they're really just telling stories about themselves. So I think I think that was kind of that became very apparent to me a few essays in that this was a this was a red herring project mm -hmm. you know that it was really about the people around these incredible animal stories which i don't know feels kind of like narcissistic or solipsistic or whatever the word is you know that we're just kind of always writing about ourselves but writing is a pretty human thing anyway so i guess that's okay and i was noticing too while while reading the collection you kind of go through evolution it starts with Yuka, who was around four or five when she was killed and one of the best preserved holy mammoths out there. But it starts with her and her death and, and goes through until the death of Cecil the lion in 2015. But really, I couldn't help noticing how throughout just it seemed to be the humans were the ones who were regressing a little yeah. bit. You have this wonderful way of just just reconstructing the animals and the humans' experience. Mm. And the hunter, his killing Yuka was more out of necessity, out of a need for survival. And it was it's just interesting to read from kind of a sacrificial death to end with this hunter who killed Cecil the lion, who basically felt the need to justify the death um, with, oh, I didn't know he was important. Right, he didn't. I, I never would have killed this lion if I would have known he had a name. Right. And that brings up a lot of questions, too, about not only 
what gives us the right to kill an animal, but also would it make a difference that this animal is important, Mm -hmm. that this animal has stature? Yeah, naming. Mm -hmm. That naming is lifting an animal out of the place where where one might or where a human at a certain point in time might normally put it. It's just so fascinating to me. And I mean, the, the Cecil Lion thing is really interesting too, because lions are not endangered. It is legal to hunt them, although we're not quite sure if that those legalities were respected on behalf of that dentist. We're not certain. And the outcry for the death of Cecil was was so huge. And I think one of the reasons that people were so upset was because he had a name. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a name like KR-492 or mm-hmm. something, which a lot of and it was a it was a Western name. I think people might have conflated the plight of extremely gravely endangered and compromised animals with the story of this lion. So then we were putting a human story onto the animal story uh, in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve, which was to point the finger at how gross trophy hunting was. And so the naming also, the naming is working in like 16 different directions, um, which I think is really interesting too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a crocodile in the book whose name gets changed a bunch depending on the human villain of the period. Because crocodiles live for so long, I think that's really interesting too. Was there a particular animal that, or story um, of an animal that you came across that you were struck by or moved by but you didn't include in the collection uh yeah well you know i didn't put any dogs in it because i thought that would be really funny because when most people think about human animal relationships like when you're sitting next to somebody on a plane they're like what do you do and i tell them what the book is about which i've stopped doing they start talking about like have you ever seen that puppy and capybara being friends or you know my dog is great his name is you know, better bean or whatever. And then the most Instagram famous dogs and hero dogs. And so I thought it would be really funny if there were like no dogs in the book at all. Also a point of contention because you're a cat person. Yeah. But you know, like I I saw a comedian say the difference between cat people and dog people (laughs) is like cat people like cats and dogs usually, Mm -hmm. but dog people are like, no, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like they think cats are just like this abomination. (laughs) And I am not like an anti-dog person. I would love to have a dog, but my cats would hate it, so I'm not going to do it. But I did. I did. My my publisher, uh, Sarah Gorham of Sarah Ben Books in Louisville, Kentucky, is a a dog lover. And there was a Saint Bernard in the first draft of the book. This like 19th century Saint Bernard who saved a bunch of people, and then <laughs> he got rid of him <laughs> because oh. I, thought, I thought it would just be really funny. Although Saint Bernards are really interesting. But yeah, uh, sometimes I have a hard time writing about animals when I can't figure out what to do with the material other than just report it. And so there were a few of those, but the cool thing is that then I could do like, I did the Paris review column kind of around the publication day of the book. And so some of the cutting room floor animals kind of got to be uh, kind of resurrected for these shorter kind of internet focused essays that don't necessarily have to be as, you know, like a lasagna of meaning and form and scene and content that can be a little more straightforward. Um, and then, I, so that's when I got to tell the tale of Springer, the do- the uh, orca, who in 20, I was like, I guess it was like 15 years ago, maybe, maybe a little later, like this juvenile orca who was seen kind of rubbing up against the ferry boats that go from Seattle to Vashon Island and all the little commuter islands right in the the bay there. Because... Springer had been abandoned and 
it's not great for a killer whale to be rubbing up against boats, both, both for itself and for, and it meant it was lonely and, and it didn't have any direction. And it's an online essay, so I won't give away the details because the details are really the only thing in the essay. It's kind of a straightforward essay, but the human effort to try to get Springer to a place where she could thrive involved a lot of people who usually stand on opposite sides of animal rights issues, like corporations and animal rights groups, different animal rights groups that were fighting each other, two nations, Canada and the United States, and also First Nations populations. There was this massive contribution and a total MacGyver plot to try to find a place for Springer to be with other whales. And it is just like, it's just like an incredible story. And I couldn't figure out a way to put it in the book and not just make it be like a Disney movie. So I was glad that I was able to find a place for it in the Paris Review. And I think, well, I won't, I think Springer's still going. I think, I think they saw her. I have like a little Google media update on my phone and I think she's got another calf. I mean, things are really shitty for the transient population of orcas in general. We really need to change our salmon harvesting practices so that we can get some more food out there for them. So I don't want to, it's not like a happy ending and now all the orcas in the world are saved. It's, it's a very grave situation for them. But um, if we could save Springer, I think we could probably do some more for, you know, this incredible, incredible species, the singing maternal, matrilineal dialected species that can do things humans could never do. So they do all these things that humans do, but then they also, you know, they travel from Mexico to Canada every year and tell stories along the way we have we have records of their stories i just yeah yeah sorry this is turning into an orca no, podcast i <laughs> orca talk with jenny <laughs> <laughs> no i i was going off of that i i'm happy that springer is doing so well because i just i really formed so many emotional connections with a lot of the animals in your in your book and and they don't really all of them have happy endings and It was really hard to find a happy animal story (laughs) or even like one that had levity. (laughs) And I I think my favorite, if I had to choose, I was just like enthralled by Harriet, Ah. the tortoise. Um, (laughs) And I looked up a picture of her the other day and her little sunken face, 175-year-old tortoise still going. But you reconstruct that essay in a very interesting way. You write it from almost Harriet's perspective, as if she were in love with her captor, Charles Mm -hmm. Darwin. Mm -hmm. Um, She's kind of suffering a bit of Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of saw her because this is like 1835. So I kind of saw her as like a like a Bronte, like Jane Eyre, you know, like, and he's like Mr. Rochester. Yeah. I, I like that you like Harriet. That's yeah. A, that's a, that's a deep cut. <laughs> I was really invested in her story. And I'm, I'm glad to know though, that she did outlive Charles Darwin. She outlived everybody. Everyone. She outlived Steve Irwin, who was her last <laughs> captor. That was, I mean, that's the, th- so the reason that I was, I want, I made that essay is because like someone decided that this, the 175-year-old Galapagos Island tortoise, who is a marvel in her own right. There is nothing about her that isn't incredible. The fact that that is a thing teaches humans so much about time, you know. But in order to sell tickets, someone 
drew do you know family circus the cartoon that's in the newspaper <laughs> i don't it's no. like it's like this old cartoon where like they'd be like billy go to the store and then it would be just like a map image of the billy character like jumping on a trampoline and going to the ice cream and, and it would be like a dotted line of his path and it was just like really wandering and meandering and they had to take the facts of harriet's life to get her from she was she was already in this zoo in the gold coast of australia in the 90s or whatever and they knew how how old she was and in order to quote unquote prove that she was darwin's the facts that they gerrymandered and wrestled to connect are just like ridiculous like the galapagos like darwin lived in england steve Irwin and the tortoise lived in australia the galapagos is nowhere near either of those places but they found a way to justify that harriet went to both because Darwin never went to Australia. Mm-hmm. So they were like, maybe she went to, there was no maybe in the, in this like website on the zoo. Like she went <laughs> to England with Darwin and Darwin put her in the British Museum for a few years. And then she ended up on this boat and she, then she survived these three gigantic floods in Brisbane. And I was like, what? And so I thought, you know, like if they could do that with facts, then I will find all the facts that I can about Charles Darwin, Galapagos Island tortoises, the whaling industry, and this particular tortoise, and I'm going to write whatever story I want. Because that's apparently what we do with animals and the facts of their reality, you know? And so I was like, great, I'm going to make a bodice ripper with like a hot sex scene between Charles Darwin <laughs> and a Galapagos Island tortoise that she's, she's tossed from man to man. <laughs> and when I was reading this one thing that I found out, it just like got me Darwin wrote a letter to a guy at the British Museum that we have that says, I didn't bring any tortoises home from the Galapagos. But we also know for sure that he did. So we have other records inventorying several Galapagos Island tortoises that he was assessing when he was trying to figure out the transmutation of species. So he lied to this guy, Gunther. Shocking. Right? And so that's when I was like, oh, she's a mistress, right? She's a side piece, right? (laughs) She's never going to get the ring. No, no, he's never going to leave her, honey. You just (laughs) got to go to Australia because he's never going to leave her. And so then it was like, yeah, like, so then I, I, my anger with this sort of like zoo, zoos trying to sell tickets by connecting this tortoise who was fine in her own right to the father of evolution, um, it got kind of like, pushed into maybe a more productive place by this why did he lie you know like what that's a fact too yeah or we think it's a fact so that's kind of the the trajectory but of course when you read it you're probably just like this tortoise seems so nice (laughs) (laughs) well it was it was interesting because i mean i was laughing and i'm a little embarrassed if you see my notes all in the margin of (laughs) like the little things i was writing down while reading it and i was laughing. I was telling my friend about it. I was like, it's so hilarious. And I was like, but it's also just awful. It's about, you know, essentially environmental colonization. And yeah, but you mask it with this humor that is so just, it's just, it's the perfect way, I think, to kind of convey the ridiculousness <laughs> of the situation. It really is. I'm glad. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And that's all of well it's all of human history right like but it really is human animal non-human animal interaction has really had some absurd just ter- like terribly absurd <laughs> little things or big things i was wondering um if you could read a little bit from oh, sure. the harriet section harriet when the hms beagle drops her anchor in 1835 
get under the biggest, shadiest frond in sight as fast as you can. Dozens of hungry sailors will jump ship, spears in hand, many lancing their first turpin within minutes. Other men will follow the deep highways of tracks up to the higher points of the island, where hill-dwelling turpin grow longer, saltier necks. In a few hours, they'll all trudge back to ship, hefting dozens of your kind in makeshift stretchers of oars and canvas, three men to every heavy shell. The earth trembles. A huge man lumbers past with a fifteen-stone turpin on his back, its arms and legs tied into shoulder straps, and its shell like a pack. You tuck yourself in, little girl. Be still. Don't hiss. Not that you have too much to worry about. There's not enough meat under your dinner plate shell to merit the tedious chore of turpin gutting. And then, to your right, a set of lighter steps. A pair of clean pants. A slight cough. The ship naturalist. Before he even sees you, he will sense you. He will clear away the brush and yell to the others that it might be wise to bring back a few tiny young tortoises that will wander the ship for months or years, eventually growing into weeks of meals for every name on the manifest. He'll pick you up in his small, soft hands without strain. Tortoise, he'll call you, not turpin. With your mouth closed, tap your tongue twice and hiss. How fancy. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. That's the one that people are like, but that's not really an essay. Sometimes people will be like, well, you have a short story in the piece, which is fair, I guess. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask about that because when I was reading, it's very reminiscent of fables, Aesop fables. Mm. I also thought a lot about William Blake. Ooh, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know Lori Moore? Have you ever heard of her? She's a short yeah. story writer. Yeah. And she's always writing about these women in New York who are going on dates and it's not going well, or, <laughs> or there are mistresses. Uh, she's got a really famous short story called How to Be the Other Woman. Uh, and they're always in this kind of directive, second person, you know, this direct address kind of thing, this you attitude. So I definitely was thinking about that kind of like, girl, you got to leave him kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> was there any other, I guess, periods or pieces of literature that inspired you? Or would you say mostly the Laurie Moore was? For the Harriet, yeah. And, and then just kind of like the Mall Flanders, uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, mm. Jane Eyre. Like, I don't know if it came out in the piece, but like, I definitely was thinking about just these kinds of women who get painted as being kind of tossed about. Mm -hmm. Because in order for the chronology to work for Harriet, she would have to get like tossed about. But yeah, I think it's an essay because I think it's arguing something more than it's telling a story. Mm -hmm. like, that's sort of my thing. I mean, I don't know what a short story is. You know, I'm sure you've had people on this podcast who could really tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to me that short stories have 
have an interest in sort of moving things forward through action and plot and image. And I think even that essay is sort of moving forward mostly through ideas and commentary. And that's what makes it an essay. But I don't know. Sometimes I think we don't need those labels anyway. I was also really thinking of this really great zine called, and you might have already heard of this, it's called The Things They Fancied by Mm -hmm. Molly Young. And it's basically about just how ridiculous the affluent and bourgeoisie are. It's a zine? Yes. Oh, cool. It's amazing. I mean, I read it in like less than an hour because I was like, I need to absorb all of this. And I just love learning about how like ridiculous rich people are. (laughs) It's just such a fun discovery. But there was one specific essay about primarily, she was speaking of the American South and how having, you know, dogs and cats weren't really seen as like domesticated animals to have as pets or genteel enough. Mm. Um, So they would keep squirrels um, (laughs) and keep them on like little gold chains around the house. And (laughs) And when these squirrels would die, they would eulogize these squirrels in poems. And there is one particular, I wish I could find it, to a squirrel called Phil um, <laughs> that was published in the Virginia Gazette in the 1700s. In the 1700s? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, it, and Young, you know, she makes a really, really interesting point that these, these men and women were so quick to humanize squirrels. And yet they were also slaveholders. This was the American South. So these were, and if they were members of the squirrel pet class, they were probably also members of the community that enslaved people. Yes. Wow. And I, I feel like that's something that you kind of wrestle with in your essays. This is something that I, I see in myself and that I'm kind of trying to pay. And I think it's, it's definitely a part of the Cecil story and I'm trying to work on, I think we are able to actually feel the life and death of non-human animals and brutal acts that are committed toward non-human animals more deeply sometimes than we're able to feel the precarity of members of our own species. I think it's too big uh, for a lot of people to process. And I think capitalism has helped numb our ability to process things like you know, genocide or severe income inequality, these things that are happening to other humans. And I think because a non-human animal death is somehow smaller or farther away from us in a way, it hurts more. So people freak out about things like dog fighting, but they're not freaking out about, you know, the fact that Flint still doesn't have much good water. And I think we really need to pay attention to that. And, you know, people, people keep pets, I think, to be able to practice grieving. I think that's a part of the domestication of cats and dogs. And I think people like watching animals feel better and get rehabbed because it's easier and it feels good. But yeah, I mean, we are often practicing extreme brutality towards our own species while we are engaging in, you know, Oh, let me get the super baby Bjorn for my <laughs> chihuahua or whatever. Or I can't, I can't stand to watch an animal being hurt. Like a lot of people, that's the like most one of the most difficult things to encounter. 
but we hear stories of humans being hurt every mm-hmm. day and we kind of have a we have a compartmentalization one might have a compartmentalization process for that which is i wish i i wish i'd gone a little further in the book honestly it's a part of my kind of growing consciousness but it's certainly something that i felt and was aware of and that i'm noticing in myself and it's intense man but i think that also comes really clear at least to me in your essays you mention a lot like what makes an animal an animal it's because we named it such Mm -hmm. and i think you make a really clear point of of giving these animals such care and attention it was hard not to feel for any of these these animals was there something you had to unlearn or rework in your writing while kind of embodying these animals or oh gosh wow what a good question jenny um well you know I was taught that it was really bad to person to put human qualities into animals to personify animals, and I think I think the reasoning behind that is these animals should stand. Their biology should stand for themselves because if you don't, then you end up only being able to understand an animal on the terms of your own biology. Mm-hmm. So a negative effect of that is, and I'll speak really loosely here. I don't have the facts in front of me, but you know, everybody decided that certain animals were super duper whooper intelligent, mm-hmm. like dolphins, because the dolphins had a centralized nervous system. They keep their young for a significant period of time. And there's a, a intense period of social learning they engage in language. And one of my favorite ones is they engage in play. And this and a series of things like the mirror test and um, object permanence and stuff like that led to this huge thing in the 70s where everybody decided that dolphins were just slippery humans or whatever. And they were super smart and they were the smartest, you know, I was taught that, right? Like the dolphin is the smartest animal in the world after a human, you know. Mm -hmm. But of course, like that's only looking at the lens of human intelligence to judge. And and meanwhile, also in the ocean are the octopodes who have a decentralized nervous system, varied practices of young rearing, and um, they do engage in intense amounts of play. They're actually pretty crafty. I don't know if you've ever seen any memes of octopodes doing crazy things. Oh, yeah. But now I want to. (laughs) Oh, it's great. Like if they're in a tank, like some of them will like climb out of the tank and turn the and then go visit their friends. But then they have a a relative sense of time. So then they'll get out of the tank and go back to their original tank before the humans come back. And they can like they're they're really I mean, they they perambulate. They're great. But um, their brain is in like eight different places and they are capable of extreme amounts of environmental empathy to now considered something that we need to pay attention to as being, you know, they're, they're supremely intelligent and we're trying to try to describe their intelligence in ways that isn't couched in our own intelligence. And so all that being said, and I tried to pay attention to that. I tried to think about that. I had to, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that like, you know, my, my pets weren't real, which my partner still is so mad at me that I talk like this. You know, my pets are just these mirror images of myself that I've made in my image. <laughs> I love them more than anything other than I love the essay. I love my partner and I love my cats, but they're not wild. They're an extension of this thing that, you know, the squirrel ladies did. You know, we're just, I'm just projecting my my domesticity and my my need for consumption onto them. And, and I'm grateful for them. So yeah, those things kind of were definitely a part of my consciousness. But I also doubled back because this is still a book about humans. And so I think there were moments where 
thinking like a human inside of an animal while being conscious or cognizant of its biology was the creative task that I put in front of myself because that's the nature of this transmission. That's the nature of what a literary essay is or literary storytelling is, is sort of like using the parameters of humanity to recount the complications of humanity. So I, while I, while I think I have a much greater sense of the boundaries of human consciousness in terms of reporting the, the realities of other specimens in the world, I also feel much more comfortable with personifying animals because there's nothing, I'm never going to be able to do anything but that. Does it have something to do with your background in performance? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's the, the other thing is like these, all these animals are performers. Mm -hmm. Like I think, and so then not only are you seeing a human putting human traits inside of a non-human animal, you're seeing a spazzy human who did theater for 10 years and just got rid of her actor's equity card, (laughs) getting inside of these animals and turning them all into like, Harriet the tortoise, you know? So the, the personal essays in that way too. Yeah. Yeah. I could even, I mean, even from the title, Animal Strike Curious Poses. I was a little baffled by it. I think when, upon first reflection, just because I was a little unsure and quickly reading through the essays, the poses were many forms. They were the mummified body of yucca. They were mm. Albrechter's, you know, yes. reimagining. Talk about a wacky <laughs> I know. misuse of <laughs> it. Just- I was wondering if there were any particular kind of renderings that you were really struck by that really came across. Yeah. Well, you know, animal strike curious poses is for somebody who was born, there's like a 10 year period. If you were born in that period, I think the reference is pretty loud, Mm -hmm. but my publisher didn't know. And it sounds like maybe the, uh, but it's a, (laughs) it's a Prince lyric, you know, Prince, right? Ah, yes. It's from when doves cry, which is an animal. And it's just, in 1984, when that song came out, it's just like basically about like being in a complicated relationship with a woman, you know, like that's what the song is about. How can you just leave me standing in a world that's so <laughs> cold? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. And then he cries, you know, but in the middle of the song, he's just for no reason. He's just asking this woman, this like, you know, why are we fighting so much woman that he's addressing to imagine a courtyard an ocean with gardens in bloom, animals strike curious poses. And it's this really loud moment. And it's like the first loud moment of the song. And it's like pop song. So it's just like radio. It's a very strange phrase to just hear when you're like roller skating with your like radio (laughs) headphones on. Like it's too convoluted for pop, you know, like it's not like I just called to say I love you kind of a thing or like baby a hundred times in a row, like animals strike curious poses. And it has in some respects, nothing to do with the song, which is about, you know, one human kind of like sad that he can't make it work with another human. (laughs) I feel, well, the song is called When Doves Cry. So it's about animals. And then I feel like that line, when I first heard it, I was like six years old when that song came out. (laughs) Like, I had this picture in my head of a cartoon lion kind of like flat, like a hieroglyphic, like, and every time I'm 43 years old now. So like for, you know, and when I was in my thirties, when I wrote the book, so for like 30, whatever years, I pictured this lion, it wasn't a real lion and it had nothing to do with a lion, but it's still there. And it's been living inside my head for decades. 
And that's what I think the book is. The book is just these like messed up drawings that humans have had inside their heads that represent animals. The, the curious poses are all kind of like living in our brains. Um, and that wasn't the answer to your question, but. No, but it was better. <laughs> it was, no, because I, I think, and it's interesting that it comes from a print song and and knowing this now, my whole family will probably be like, how did you not know this? There is no reason Huge that you need fans. to know. Yeah. I mean, it's like not, it's only uttered once. <laughs> it's it's a two second moment of, mm-hmm. of a, so you're, you are just fine. And I'm glad the title works outside of the illusion. That's actually more important. And also that Prince never sued me. He died when the book was in print. And I was like, uh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting too that you mentioned that song is, it's called When Doves Cry. But it's about humans. Mm-hmm. And I feel like something similar happens in your book. Animals strike curious poses. And yes, it is about animals, but it's also kind of decentralizing the narratives that we humans have given these animals over centuries. Word. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, great. Let's go on tour. That's exactly <laughs> You heard it here first. <laughs> that's exactly, that's not, I, I couldn't, I literally couldn't have said it in a more uh, eloquent way myself. And that's what I hope that the book, or at least rather that that's what, it's okay if you don't, if you don't, if it, when we're not all as like such a, a generous reader as you and such a thoughtful reader, it's fine. <laughs> like if you're just like, cool gorilla, bro, you know, that's fine too. But it feels really good to be seen, you know, in that way. I was wondering if you would, mind ending with a particular any essay or passage that you'd like to reflect with or reflect on like read it out loud yes yeah sure maybe i'll just read so i have one cat and it's a it's a weird one um it's an essay that's impossible to read out loud so i'm going to read it (laughs) this gentleman in the 1800s named christopher smart was put into uh a bedlam, basically, like a, what was then called a lunatic asylum for quote-unquote religious mania. He was already a very successful writer in London at the time. And we don't even know what he was in there for. He might have been uh, an alcoholic. He might have been actually mentally unwell. He might have just been too much in debt and somebody put him in there so he'd stop spending so much of his wife's money, which is his wife's dad's money. And for some reason, he just wrote this really long poem uh, that has 75 lines just riffing on how cool his cat is. <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's like the most famous cat poem in English. The little excerpt from this longer poem is called My Cat Jeffrey. And I found out when I was researching it that half of the poem was missing. There should be a left side of the page and we've only been reading the right side of the page. Every line of the 75 lines on the right side of the page begins with the word for, for I will consider my cat Jeffrey, for he is the living servant of God, uh, (laughs) daily attending him, for he spraggles upon waggle with the voice of command. The language of it is amazing. And then the missing side, the left side, all began with let's. So I finished finished the poem. I wrote the left-hand side, and I made it about cat videos, because I feel like when we're alone at our desks, just like desperate and watching like cat TikTok or whatever, I think what we're doing is really similar to what Christopher Smart was doing. Let it be known that the space between God and smart men is prayer. Let it be known that prayer moves man and God into fragmentary bits. Let it be known that fragmented prayer is heard in the cat's nipping cry. Let it be known there's no sickness darker than bridging two fragments with logic. 
Let the two fragments, godly and smartly, rejoin with a cat in the gap. Let cat particulars keep odd time and vociferate all hours. Let cat thoughts keep a human body sweetly outside itself. Let cattery soothe the kept man, be he abed, at desk, or exiled. Let the vox felis remind us days at a desk are a kind of keeping. Let the man at desk worship the cat like a leaping Byzantine. Let the man at desk go a-catting to squelch the roll and prank of his mind. Let cat pranks parcel out into waggles for the man at desk's delighting. Let the cat waggle visions pass desk to desk and man to man as do the ballads. Let cat waggle tales alight on the desks of all those kept by drudgery. Let cat waggle ditties goose the clock of the jeopardized and bedrudged. Let the cat waggles invade continent and colonies. Let God bless the smart who sends a jay-waggle down the hump. Let cat-waggle dreams solve all desky jeopardies and to the letter. Let jay be the missing form. Bless those who fly their keep at first watch. Let e be the eye of Jeffrey and the eye that disremembers all eyes. Let o be the illogic that circles in vigilance like a cat near sleep. Let f be filidae filis, which, oh holy cats, is doubly fine. Let R be not what we are, but what we air, and what air strikes us. Let Y be yes, two short roads to a line, which is Y, Jeffrey, and then yes, Jeffrey. Let seventy-four lines of cat letting meet seventy-four lines of warm, forewanting love. Let a line of cats waggling against the ceaseless prayer be love. Let Jeffrey hover over the road and then let his low roving be love. Let his feet pad the road and find a man kneeling a fours for love. Let his cat jig, cat bourree, and cat saraband bespraggle us as love. Let a cat to a drowning man be love. Let love be his keep, for he can creep. Yeah, I never got to read that one out loud before. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were able to read it here. Thank you. Thank you so much Elena for this conversation it's just been delightful it has been a joy it's been so great to to talk to you and thank you so much for taking so much care in reading the book that's a that's a special thing and should always be acknowledged thank you thank you for listening to the Swanee Review podcast if you like what you heard the best way to support the Swanee Review America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswaneereview.com. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.